Man, I haven't been up in front of people since before Christmas. It's been a long time. So if I am nervous, forgive me. Uh, but before I kind of get started, I want to acknowledge um, it is National Women's Month. So I want to say thank you to all the women here who have made our lives a lot more beautiful. So if all the women can stand up in the room, whether you're a young, oh yeah, I want, you, I want, to, I want people to recognize you. Like, it's, it's awesome. You guys can sit. But I am very thankful for females, women. Um, yeah, so this month is all about you. So husbands, prepare to serve your wives well. Siblings, do that well. Um, but just a quick survey in the room. Um, how many have children? Show of hands. Okay. How many have nephew, nieces, little cousins under the age of 10? Okay. How many work or have worked with children? Show your hands. Okay. There's some commonality in the room. Well, if you're with children long enough, you will probably get one of these. If it comes on, a, on a, one of these, right? Or you'll get one of these if they're younger. Next one, right? How many, have, how many of you guys have ever received one of these photos from children? Yes. We all have raised our hand. There's some commonality in the room. But before language skills are developed, children learn to make an impact in the world through visual arts. It's the first place where children are confirmed in their ability to create and not just to create, but to reflect and embrace God's image as co-creators. When children create beautiful things, it's an act of love. It's an act of connectivity. It's an act of commonality. And it's not just for self-expression, but an offering of mutual enjoyment with the beholder. At the core of their art, regardless of the blurred lines, the odd choice of colors, the unique shapes, what they are doing, they are expressing a deep yearning for connection. The child is less concerned about achieving some kind of visual balance between the object or trying to depict some grandiose meaning. Their goal, ultimately, is to create something that makes sense to you. They'll say, they'll come up with their picture. It's crazy because there's a picture right here. They'll come up with their picture and say, this is for you, mommy. This is for you, daddy. This is for you, auntie, auntie, Ruth, or uncle Shaq, or cousin. What they are really saying is, I want you to be pleased with my art. I want you to be pleased with my creation. By nature, our response as adults to beauty is to worship. We'll say, thank you, Sarah. And the next line is, this is beautiful, right? 
We say that, right? We, when we see art like this, all we can do is worship and say, this is beautiful. So what we are doing is we are capturing and cap, uh, participating with the beauty of their creative imagination. So as we move forward today, we'll come to understand that as co-creators, we become redemptive agents of beauty to a broken and a chaotic world. I'm going to say that again. As co-creators, we become redemptive agents of beauty to a broken and chaotic world. Let's pray. Oh, I feel good. I feel like confident. Like, oh, I feel good. Uh, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, I, I just thank you that the spirit is moving. Uh, I pray that whatever it is that you want us to learn today, help us to release any distractions. Lord, would you handle the warfare? Would you help us be in this place to hear from you and to move our lives in a way that creates beauty with the things that we create? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, uh, are your phones? We're going to read Exodus 31. By the way, I never studied or read this scripture in my life. When I read it, it was quite beautiful. But uh, I'm reading from the NLT version. If you don't have your Bibles, you can look to the screens. Start off by this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Look, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, grandson of her, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God, given him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. He is a master craftsman, expert in working with gold, silver, and bronze. He is skilled in engraving mounting gemstones and in carving wood. He is a master at every craft. And I personally appointed Ahoyab, son of Ahishma, which is a crazy word, of the tribe of Dan, to be his assistant. Moreover, I've given special skill to all the gifted craftsmen so they can make all the things I've commanded you to make. The tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark's cover, the place of the atonement, all the furnishing of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstands with all its accessories, the incense altars, the altar of the burnt offerings with all its utensils, the wash basin with its stand, the beautiful stitched garment, the sacred garment for Aaron the priest, and the garment for his sons to wear as they minister as priests, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense for the holy place. The craftsman must make everything as I have commanded you. Beautiful stuff there. For us to understand the biblical narrative of Exodus 31, we must connect it to the surrounding chapters of chapter 24 through 30. Can we do that? You guys got to talk. Can we do that? Yes. It's a nice day. Let's go. I feel very pumped. I don't know why I'm pumped. <laughs> I think the spirit is on me. Exodus 24 opens with God calling Moses again to ascend the mountain, to worship, and to receive the giving of the Ten Commandments. This time, it's not just Moses who is ascending. 
But it's Aaron, his two sons, and the 70 elders are permitted to join him. So as they journey and climb this mountain together, the Bible says as they saw the God of Israel. Isn't that crazy? You, I don't know how they saw him, but they, the Bible says they saw him. So in addition to capturing this visual memory of Yahweh, the Bible says that these men ate a covenant meal with God. Imagine that. Your favorite meal, whether it's pizza, whatever it is, whatever it is, and you're eating in the presence of God. You see him. So from there on, the Lord calls Moses again to ascend higher to receive the Ten Commandments. So Moses goes up the mountain, and the Bible says he disappears into a dark cloud. And he's in the dark cloud for 40 days and for 40 nights. So this is where we continue the forthcoming story of Exodus 25 to 30 in connection to Exodus 31. Throughout Exodus 25 to 30, Moses receives more than just the Ten Commandments. He also received a divine blueprint for building a meeting place for God and his people. Yahweh says in Exodus 25 verse 8, Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. Or in the ESV translation it says, that I may dwell with them. This place is known as the tabernacle. We all know the tabernacle. It's this portable sanctuary constructed by Moses as a place of worship during the time when they wandered through the desert up until they went to the promised land. The building of the tabernacle was more than simply a worship site in the desert. It did more than just recreate a social space and a social identity for Israel. It was a piece of heaven on earth. It's the place where the divine and earthly realms meet. For us to read that, we can gloss over that. But I want us to kind of sit with the thought. Like, let your imagination try to wrap itself around the fact that the God who spoke the heavens were created. The God who breathed the word in all the stars were born, who assigned the seas and its boundaries and locked the oceans in vast reservoirs, who made you from dust so you can have life, chose, he chose to dwell in a tent built by human hands. Think about that. Imagine that, that the God wanted to do that. So what could speak to God's love for us? And his fears and radical desire to be close in relationship, that he would choose to dwell in a tent built by human hands. Think about that thought. We like to gloss over that, but he chose to dwell in a tent built by human hands. Even though the list of building materials, lampstands, and ancient altars may seem repetitive and, and tedious to us. 
precisely the mass of this material that alerts us that we have arrived at the heart of the matter from the perspective of the Jewish people. Or would I like to say, the perspective of the oppressed. The heart of the matter is Yahweh is with them. As an oppressive and vulnerable people who experienced 400 years of injustice, experienced the, the vast exposure to trauma and abuse from structures of power, complaining about resources, skeptical about leaders, wandering through unsettling territory, threatened by fear and war and violence. God stoops down from heaven to gaze upon the needy and the poor and to dwell with them. See, I resonate with this a lot. As an African-American man who lives in a tokenized, dominant, and controlling world, I understand the narrative of the oppressed. I understand what it's like living in a place called home, America, and be treated unfairly. I understand what it's like to experience injustice. I understand what it's like to experience trauma and abuse from structures of, of power. I understand the uncertainty of delayed meals. Understand the mistrust of godly leaders. Understand what it's like to wander and live through war zones and being gripped by fear. But the question is, do you understand the narrative of the oppressed? It is easy to promote toxic charity and glaze over it with a messianic complex church. It is easy to come into an urban neighborhood and say, I'm doing good things for God. It is easy. But the question is, do you understand the, the narrative of the oppressed? Do you? Think about that question. Because if you don't, this is the right place to be. And this is the right place to be. You better get what people look like me. So in addition to sharing Israel's experience, I also know the powerful relief and comfort of God's presence through all things. All things. All things I have experienced living in that neighborhood. I understand what it's like to feel God's presence, to know that God was tabernacle with me in that location. So carrying on with the tabernacle, God intended to be present with his people in a way he has not been before. From the fall in Genesis up until the tabernacle's construction, the Bible records people walking and talking with God but not dwelling with him. No longer will Yahweh meet Israel at the top of the mountain with only Moses or just speak through signs and wonders. But his presence will be visible in the midst of the camp. 
This is this ground-level intimacy among God and his people. No other nation experienced this special relationship. Again, imagine the joy and the amazement that it felt for the people to experience. As an oppressive, as an oppressed people to experience his closeness. The presence of the tabernacle preached this message every time they saw it. If they ever wonder if God was still with them, if they ever wondered if God left them, all they had to do was look over and see and point as he is over there. He is in the camp made by human hands. This tabernacle, friends, was life-changing. It changed things around them. It changed things to them. And the presence of God in the tabernacle carried them through. Now, the tabernacle was very important to the priestly author. Too often when we read Exodus, we miss that nearly one-third of the book is dedicated to the tabernacle structure, furnishing, and artwork. Why is that? What is he trying to communicate to us about this tabernacle and its structure? Well, here's why. Egyptian authority was not only manifested in political and military control, but it was also within their images of pagan worship. This abomination held a strong cultural influence that contributed to the society, including Israel. 400 years, they were bombarded with images of pagan worship. So when God redeemed his people from Israel, well, from Egypt, he needed to reshape the way they thought. He needed to reshape their imagination. He needed to reshape the way they lived. He needed, the way, he needed to shape the way they worshipped. And most importantly, he needed to reshape their concept of God. And he accomplished this through his divine creative imagination. Through the design, construction, and function of the tabernacle, God reveals himself again to be like any other God. Yahweh wasn't just concerned about the order of the tabernacle, or a new law, or a new priesthood. But he also cared deeply about the beauty, the artwork, and the fashion within. Every element in the tabernacle told its own story and meaning. Every piece had beauty and depth behind it. From the Ark of the Covenant to the patterns woven into the priestly garments. Every visible symbol pointed the people to glorify and worship the most beautiful one, God himself. It's amazing. God uses art. For those who are artists here, this is not on my script, by the way. For those who are artists here and who has been manipulated by the church, who has not had a space to create or use their art to glorify God, I am sorry. So in addition to creating a sacred space, he does this. Yahweh re recommissions them to be co-creators of beauty 
and goodness. He recommissions them. He could easily build this tabernacle by his own self without the help of human hands. Instead, this is what he does. He joyfully and graciously and redemptively utters a creation narrative to his people. Yahweh tells them to make, to make, 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 make beautiful things. It shows up 57 times. I circled it, by the way. From chapter 24 through 30, the word make revealed itself 57 times. He encouraged them to create beautiful things. It's their first great constructive and collaborative act after crossing the Red Sea. And this is crazy right here. Just as the cosmos, the universe, began with an act of creation, so does Jewish history, the history of a redeemed people, begin with an act of creation. So that's when we arrive at Exodus 31, we see beauty emerging in the very presence of their trauma. He starts by saying this, behold, look. In other words, he says, pay attention to what I'm about to do. Look what I'm about to create. When I create, when we create, it's beautiful, it's meaningful. And when it's beautiful, it leads to true worship. It leads to me. I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, grandson of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Son of God, or the Spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability, expertise in all kinds of crafts. And God's great wisdom doesn't choose a warrior, a prophet, a king, or priests, but he chooses an artist, an artist who uses their art to worship and glorify God. And the crazy thing is, after God names these two men, he says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. And by the way, for all you Bible people out there, this is the first time in the scriptures, that God fills someone with the Holy Spirit. And that person is an artist. Good. Oh, you're fine. Look, art is just flowing from, it's like manna from heaven right here. <laughs> it's good. So just as the Holy Spirit was present in Genesis 1, hovering over the surface of the waters and creating beauty and order, we see his involvement again, creating beauty and order within the tabernacle. God cares about beauty. God cares about creativity. God cares about art. Yahweh says in verse 3, he shows why he cares. He gives the artist great wisdom ability, and expertise in all their crafts. He empowered them to make beautiful things that pointed people back to a relationship with God. We were made to make beautiful things, 
So what does this mean for us? Am I calling you to be the next, what is it, Picasso or whatever? Am I calling you to be that? No, maybe so. But how do we begin to see and live as co-creators? We were created to bring our lives into alignment with the purpose of God and creation. Namely, his purpose to communicate his glory in the overflow of God-exalting, spirit-satisfying love. And what that alignment looks like is this. Displaying and offering glory through our creativity. All of us are makers. I'm not just the only one who has a gift. You're not just coming to church and see me perform my gift. But all of us have gifts. We were all created to be creative. We are all creatures of the imagination. Yet we have done very little to cultivate and sanctify that imagination. Mainly because, one, sin distorts our imaginative vision in creating beauty. It hijacks, it fragments, and it darkens our ability to see ourselves as true co-creators. Two, it's not easy to imagine nor create beauty in a pandemic. You guys know we had a tough two and a half years, right, of trauma, global trauma. And some of us are still chest deep in it, carrying around a blanket of heavy trauma. Whether you're someone who lost someone to COVID, or wrestling with the notions of vaccines and having friends on the other side of that question, whatever that question may be. Wrestling with the outbreak of war and violence, or marriage crisis, family crisis, or just trying to maintain the busyness and chaos of home life. This hinders our ability to imagine beauty or to create it. Most of you guys are saying, how do you expect me to slow down and imagine beauty? How do you expect me to create beauty? You don't know my life. You don't know what I'm going through. And what you are calling me to is another checklist item, another thing that I'm supposed to do as an obligation to God. It is who we are. It shouldn't feel like another task list. But from our very being, we are called to create. So to answer that question, I would just repeat what Jesus said. Here's what Jesus says. He says, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly father feeds them. Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was dressed as beautiful, beautifully as they are. Now, most of us know that scripture, right? It's like when I hear that scripture, it's just like this comforting uh, feeling that God knows my worries. He takes care of them. But if you actually look deeper at it, it's this invitation that God heals 
our imagination by gazing at beauty as a form of self-care. He tells us, again, look at the lilies. Look how beautiful they are. We should be looking at beauty to help us restore the beauty within us so we can create beauty in the world. When we are creative in any capacity, we battle against the unmaking of pain and evil. I'm going to say that again a lot slower. When we are creative in any capacity, we battle against the unmaking of pain and evil. Creativity is a redemptive act. It is one of many biblical patterns for restoration. Just as a child brings you one of these and proudly puts it on a refrigerator, our imaginative activity can reveal glory and produce worship unto God. We can live artistically by showing people a glimpse of God's redemptive work in this fallen world and inspire them to connect with the master artist who wants to transform their lives. Whether that is to paint, I enjoy painting, by the way. Whether that is cooking, whether that means to love or to sing, to write, to dance, to teach, to heal, whatever it is that you're doing, we do this. We act in the image of the one who sustains our being. To look at the crumbling blocks of the world and ponder and say, I think I can make something of this. I think I can make beauty from ashes. Friends, we are headed towards beauty. Just look at the name Garden City. Those two words are past and future images of beauty. We are headed towards that day. I love in Hebrews 9, um, it, it talks about how the tabernacle was obsolete and we will one day see the real tabernacle in heaven. And not only is it this futuristic idea, but the tabernacle also lives within us. So he has created beautiful things in us so that we can be a beautiful people towards the world. So as we, as co-creators, again, we become redemptive agents of beauty to a broken and a chaotic world. We can create beauty. Whether it's the simplest thing as changing the diaper, we can create beauty wherever we are at. Whatever space we are in, we can create beauty. So if you guys can just bow your heads with me, we'll pray um, and just encourage you, like wherever your week may look like this week, I, I want you to really look at your week and say, where in my life can I create beauty? Where in my life can I be, can my vision and my imagination be reshaped to see beauty? Whether that's with your kids, seeing them as a beautiful um, creatures from God, or whether that's your work, or whether that's your house, wh whatever it is, whatever it is, I want us to gaze at beauty as Jesus calls us to look at the lilies, look at the birds to bring rest to our hearts. So let's pray.
God, you said in your word that for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God, you have created us to be beautiful people, and not just beautiful people, but you have, you have redemptively uttered a creation narrative to us still this day to, to make beautiful things, to be creative in any way that we are called to do. So, Father, I pray uh, that you would um, take care of us, that you would uh, acknowledge our, our pain and our suffering, uh, that you would bring us close to uh, a future beauty that you are bringing us into. So, Lord, we thank you for this time, and uh, we just give it all to you. In Jesus' name, amen.